Okay, welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible class. Uh, we are going to be in Exodus chapters 21 through 23 tonight. Uh, if you have been a part of our study, you know we've been far slower than that. We've usually been covering a chapter at a time, and some of those chapters are pretty small. Uh, according to our schedule, we group some sections together, and for the next several classes, there are some of them that are uh, grouped quite a few chapters. And In fact, some of them will be a significant amount as we continue further. Uh, but the point is we're in this chronological study, and so some of these things need uh, more attention or more extensive time than others. And uh, tonight is one of those that we do have the ability to group some of it together to make it... Uh, a class that covers more territory. Uh, but if you've been a part of the study, you'll understand why uh, we're in that place where uh, the Israelites have been released from Egyptian captivity and they have made it through a sequence of events that have occurred. They have, they're now at Mount Sinai. And in our last class, we dealt with Exodus chapter 20, which uh, many people uh, confuse to be the law. Uh, Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are given, they confused that to be the law that the Israelites were under. And we wanted to emphasize, and did so last week, that uh, it really was the foundation. It was like the pillars upon which the law stood. And then following that, while they're still at Mount Sinai, which lasts approximately two years, uh, following that is when specific laws are built upon those pillars. And as we get into Exodus 21 and 22 and 23 in this class, uh, what we're doing is uh, we're seeing the laws that are given to Moses that expound upon those pillars. Uh, and it's an interesting section for me because uh, it is a section that most people, if you're in a Bible reading schedule and you go through, uh, you know, the Bible, however you've got your schedule set up and you're reading sections at a time each day, oftentimes people get to sections like this one and they either just skip it or sometimes they lose their interest altogether and, and quit their reading program because it seems a little choppy and it doesn't seem quite as applicable to the account. But clearly the fact that we have it preserved for us by God's providence in the scriptures, there must be a reason that it's there for our learning too. Uh, we don't live under the law of Moses. We live under the new covenant. Uh, but there are principles in this law that help us to see the responsibility that each of us have toward each other and toward God. And as we stated last week, nine of the ten of those pillars in the Ten Commandments are restated in the New Covenant. And so uh, there are principles found throughout these laws that have to do with how we live even today. But specifically for the recording as it's made for the Israelites, what's significant to me is this law was a very burdensome law for them, and it was very detailed because of the fact that they had spent all of their lifetime, at least all of those who were actually receiving the law, in Egyptian bondage. And so they didn't really know how to act. They didn't really know uh, much about their God, except for the fact that it had been passed down to them that God would ultimately deliver them. So as you get into this section, what, what they're doing is they're learning about God. And they're learning about each other, and they're learning that freedom also brings a level of responsibility. And so they're given this law for the purpose of helping them to become the people that God wants them to be. He selected them as his nation. Now they need to know what that means. Yeah. Um, one word you use there, responsibility, I love, because when you read 
um, Exodus 20 like we did last week and we look at the Ten Commandments, the second half of those have to deal with man's responsibility to another man, to each other. And as we get into 21, 22, and 23 today, all these laws that we read are based off of that part of the Ten Commandments, that what do we owe to one another? Okay, uh, just logistically as we go through this, since it is a significant amount of uh, material, uh, we will not be reading it verse by verse like we have tried to do up to this point, and we'll get back to when we get shorter sections to cover, but uh, we're going to cover it in sections uh, tonight, and then there'll be some specific areas where we will be reading uh, and highlighting, making emphasis on certain sections, but we're going to start in Exodus chapter 21, and, and not reading a lot of it just yet. Uh, I'll, I'll comment on the section. Rich will have some comments he wants to add, maybe. And then we'll have a part, a part of it that we'll also read in some of these sections as well. Uh, we'll just kind of play it by, uh, by sec section by section as we go. But the first part we want to consider is Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. And uh, what I want to highlight before we read the little section that I want to read is something that I've already said. And that is the only thing they have known is Egyptian captivity. Uh, the only thing that they have known is Egyptian bondage, Egyptian slavery. Uh, and Egyptian slavery, as we know it from when the Israelites were there, unfortunately was somewhat similar to what was the period of slavery in the United States, in that people were not treated as humans. Uh, they were certainly not treated respectfully. They were, they were treated in a sinful way in most cases. I mean, it may have been a few here and there. I certainly don't want to paint with a blanket uh, brush or a broad brush. I'm not trying to justify in any way, shape, or form. But what I'm trying to say is what you know historically is what happened in our country very much was what happened in Egypt with the Israelites. And so as they then came out of this captivity, it would have been very tempting for them to treat other people that way, uh, especially as it became a practice with the Israelites, if somebody owed a debt that they could not pay, they could sell themselves, as it were, into a servitude position to pay back their debt. And so it would be very easy for a person who had, uh, had experienced what happened in Egypt, or at least their family had, to act in such a way that they were very much like the Egyptians. And God's saying, you can't be like that. That's sinful. You have to treat people with respect. And so what they're being told here in this first section of chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, is you have to treat people right. And a part of that had to do with it cannot be indentured servitude uh, uh, to a, you know, a non-ending uh, time frame, I guess. You couldn't put somebody permanently in your servitude. They had a debt. That's why they would be in your servitude. They were to be treated right in that, and that debt would eventually be taken care of. And specifically, God says in this case, six years. So no matter what the debt was, six years, that they were able to use this person in their servitude to produce work, to produce whatever it was in the field or in the animals that they were supposed to do to help pay off that debt. And specifically, well, before I read it, Rich may have something to say. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, this idea here, we could relate to like our common day debt collectors. Instead of selling your debt being sold to a debt collector where they call you and email you and bug you 24 seven, you would then sell yourself into servitude and you would then be auctioned off to whoever purchased you and you would work for that person as a servant for six years. And not only does this echo our responsibility to each other, but it also echoes the idea of the Sabbath that will be freed on the seventh year. They work for six years and they're free on the seventh. 
think that's what I want to add for now because I think I know where you're going. All right. And, and I, I do want to emphasize here that this was, again, that word slavery is a very volatile word. Uh, and this was more of an employee situation than a slavery thing. And it wasn't that they received wages. It's that they were taken care of. And then what they produced, their wages paid for their debt. Okay, but specifically, I'm going to look at verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 21, where they were told, But if a servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And so the idea here was they worked for those six years, and then they were let free. But if this person chose to stay, you know, and specifically it says his relationship with his master has something to do with this. Or his family that might remain in this environment has something to do with this. Then he could make a commitment. And his commitment was, I am choosing to remain an employee or, an, or a servant of this individual and continue a working arrangement with this individual for the rest of my life. But it was a commitment. You know, he was to be brought before the leaders of Israel so that it would be shown that he's not being forced to do this. It's not something that's being bound upon him. He is willingly choosing to stay in the servitude of this master. And not that I want to get off topic, but that's very much our responsibility even today as a Christian. What we're saying is, I love my master and I will willingly serve him for the rest of my life. And so when we enter into this relationship with him, that's the commitment that we are making. And we're not doing it by force. We're doing it by choice. And that's what would happen in these relationships. You have to continue to get off topic. <laughs> I think intentionally or not that this here is told, um, this is recorded for us, not just because we need to know how Israelite law involving indentured servants took place, but we need to understand this concept of one, how we treat people who are below us in a hierarchy, but also how we treat people who are above us in a hierarchy in the same way that Christ came willingly to serve. We too are called to that same level of voluntary servitude to our, to our family, to our friends, to our God. And I think, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but the idea of it all very much echoes the idea of like the nails of the cross in my mind. So very that's like, so. yeah, very much so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The next section is Exodus 21 and verses 12 through 21. And we won't read again most of this, but the, the, the discussion that's going on there has to do with uh, the way they treat each other and disagreements and how they could escalate and problems that could come about as a result of that. And it specifically even highlights something that would be coming in the future. They wouldn't get this until they're in the land. But, you know, if there was a disagreement and somebody was injured or even killed uh, in self-defense, then there would be a city or even accidental. There would be a city that would be set up where they could flee to for a trial. Uh, and after this trial, if they were proven to be acting in self-defense or by accident, then they would have restrictions but they would not suffer the consequence of even the loss of their own life. On the other hand, if they had acted in a premeditated way, if their action was murder, then there would be no refuge. There would be no way of escape, and they would be, uh, they would be, there would be consequences. They would even lose their own life in a capital punishment situation. But verses 12 and 13 are significant. As he says, But if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him with guile, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And so this city that would be set up, or these cities that would be set up, it would be as though they were running to God uh, for deliverance. 
But if, even if they ran to God for deliverance, if what they had done was an act of murder, if they had, th then there were consequences. And God would not stop those consequences. So they would be taken from God's altar and suffer the consequences of their actions. Yeah, and when you read through passages like this in Exodus, it's hard to find where this applies to me today. But I think here, in this circumstance, it's very clear that God is trying to emphasize the importance of human life. Yeah, and how they treat each other in those lives. Yeah. All right, verses 22 through 27, uh, these lives extend. You know, uh, mankind has had a, uh, a faulty thought process, I guess, from, from most of our existence that, that says that I'm of this value and somebody else is either higher or lower than me. And so we estimate people's value based on ourselves. And one of the things that has happened, has happened throughout time, I suppose, is that women have been viewed with a lesser value and children have been viewed with a lesser value. And that's just not accurate. And so as you get into verses 22 through 27, he talks about uh, an escalating event where a wife or somebody has tried to intervene and she has been come injured. And in this case, she's even pregnant. And so this child potentially can be injured as well. And let's read verses 22 through 25 of Exodus 21. It says, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no lasting harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any lasting harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for, for strike. So in this case, the two men are evidently in a conflict and the woman tries to intervene and she's hurt. And in this case, this example, she's pregnant and the injury she receives causes her to prematurely give birth to this child. Now, if nothing goes wrong, if the child is, is, it is born alive, and as it's born alive, if there's nothing wrong with this child and no consequence to the mother as well, then the injury still brings a judgment but the consequences are not as severe. If on the other hand, the text says that there is a permanent injury, whether it be death or just a disfigurement of the, uh, the, the, the wording here applies to both the living child and the mother. If there's an injury to this living child, uh, even to the point of the living child dying or to the mother of a, a death or an injury, then their result of that is uh, there are consequences and they're matching consequences. Now I do wanna emphasize before Rich speaks, and he may be going here already anyway, uh, they messed this up uh, in many ways. And one of the ways they messed it up, this is a national law. This is a governmental law that God has given them about how the nation is to act as a government. This is not a personal get even kind of situation. And the Jews made it that. So by the time Jesus uh, is on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he even says to them, you heard an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but here's what I say. You treat each other right. This is, this is not a law given meaning that I can take personal vengeance. If somebody hurts me, I can take personal vengeance to get even. That's not what this law says. What this law says is the government of Israel had a responsibility to keep uh, proper organization and discipline uh, in their nation. Yeah, and to go back to um, 22, yeah, starting in 22, the idea here, I've always taken this verse out of context. And for that, I'm a little bit ashamed I've used in this verse to justify on um, like sermons against abortion, which there are plenty of great verses in the Bible to do that. But I don't know under this new light that this is one of them. To me now, looking at this under the context of the surrounding text, this is about 
God enforcing the idea that an infant life and a life of a woman of childbearing age are equal, yeah. that there is no hierarchy in the importance of one's life. Yeah. Rights go extend to all ages, don't they? Yeah. Okay, verse 28 through 32 now in this section, we're not going to read here, but specifically we have responsibility, or they, the Israelites had responsibility to keep others protected from their animals. And I understand this. See, here's the thing. Uh, if you have an animal that had acted normally and everything was fine and somebody got injured, well, you had a responsibility to make that right. But on the other hand, if you knew that animal was an animal that had hurt people or acted in an aggressive way or whatever, well, there was a higher level of responsibility. And I understand it because of this. If I know, and I've taken this law to mean I can get even, and I have somebody I have a problem with, wouldn't it be really easy for me, uh, if I knew I couldn't hurt him, to just let my animal do it? I mean, I got an aggressive animal anyway, why not just let him, let him loose around that person? So you see, what he's saying is, you have responsibility for the consequences of your actions, even if you're not the one literally who did it. And so he says to them, you need to take care of your property, or rather your animals and everything as well, in such a way that you protect other people. Yeah. And I think this um, goes to like elaborate on a much larger idea that we're responsible for everything that we cause, whether indirectly or not. The same could be said for um, telling the truth, that I am indirectly misleading you. That's just the same thing as same misleading thing. you. Yeah. Same thing. All right, and that continues on in verses 33 through 36 as well, only this time it talks about property. Responsibility to make sure your property was in such a way that it wouldn't hurt somebody else uh, who might be working with you or whatever. Yep. <laughs> okay, chapter 22 now. Again, we're still in section, so we're going to be a little quick in chapter 22. And we'll slow down a little bit in chapter 23 if we do this the way I have planned. Uh, but it's just a lot to cover. So in Exodus chapter 22... Verses 1 through 5, you know what? Uh, again, building on this pillar of responsibility toward each other under the law, God says, not only do you as an Israelite have responsibility for your own actions, not only do you have responsibility for the way you conduct your animals around other people and the way you conduct your property around other people, but you also have a responsibility on how you treat your neighbors or another person's possessions. And in this case, it's in verse 1 through 5, it's talking about animals. I can't take it, uh, advantage of you by figuring out a way to defraud you out of something that belongs to you. And there are several of the pillars that deal with this. And that's why, as Rich pointed out a while ago, there's kind of a whole section that says how you treat each other is important. And so he's saying here, look, if, you're, uh, if your neighbor has an animal and you in some way create a problem with that, harm that, take that away, well, you're going to suffer the consequences. Yeah, the next couple of verses here deal with um, treating your neighbor justly. And I think that's the whole point of this is to treat each other justly, but God is going to go through and elaborate for them. What does it mean to be just to one another? Yeah. He goes on the same thing, verses 6 through 15. Same thing, a little bit of a different twist, but the same thing. Uh, I'm not, if I'm an Israelite under this law, then I'm, I have a responsibility toward your property as well. I've got to make sure that your property, I'm not defrauding you. I'm not being dishonest with you. I'm not taking advantage of you. Because all of it has to do with the fact that God wants the Israelites to be different than the rest of the world. Even today, you look out here in the world and somebody has the opportunity to take advantage of you. Most people in the world have the attitude that says, I'm going to get what's mine and my rights are more important than yours. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that my rights are met and I don't care the consequences of yours. And the principle that's established here is, well, that's just not right. 
God says you have a responsibility to each other as well. And that's because all of us are made in the image of God, and Jesus died for all of us. Yeah, I mean, not to take you back to Sunday school or even preschool, but treat others how you want to be treated. That's the whole point of this treating your neighbor justly, is that what is just for you is also just to them. Okay, verses 16 through 18 of chapter 22. Uh, again, we get back to what Rich was talking about a while ago with the woman who was bearing a child or had, had a child born prematurely and talking about rights. Well, he emphasizes again the fact that they were responsible for how they treated women. They could not, and this was, some, this was practiced in Egypt and it was practiced in many of the heathen countries, still is today, by the way, in some nationalities, and that, that is that men consider women possessions. And God says, that's not the way it's going to work. Men have a responsibility. In fact, beyond that, I think men have the greater responsibility because they're supposed to be leaders. You know, we live in a society even today that says, you know, women are supposed to remain pure and men are just men. Well, that's wrong. This passage here, way back even under the old law, was establishing that men had the responsibility for purity. And so he says, you've got to carry this out and you've got to follow it. Now, there's one other section that I want to deal with before I move on, but I'm going to let Rich comment if he wants to at this point. Sure. I think this passage here is going to be very important for the Israelite people in the future as they move into Canaan, whereas um, we know they're not going to drive everybody out of Canaan like they're supposed to. So they're going to have influences from these Canaanite religions where they'll tell you that women are less than men and that they're allowed to take them and do what they want with them. So God here is establishing this barrier of purity, preparing them for what later will become a temptation for them. Okay, now in verse 18 of Exodus 22, he talks about sorcery. He says, put the sorcerers to death. Uh, I don't like the wording there simply because I don't think it's used the same way that we use it today. Uh, when we think of a sorcerer or a sorceress, we think of somebody that's delving into magic or something like that. Uh, the wording here, I think, has to do with more of a you know, this idea under the Ten Commandments that they were not supposed to have other gods before him, and that's going to come up again in this context. And I think the idea of this sorcerer or sorceress is somebody who is trying to represent one of these pagan gods. And so if somebody were in Israel was to say, I'm the priest or priestess of whatever god of Egypt that they had, uh, had connected to in some way, that person was to be put to death. Because that's the kind of thing that would draw people away from God. The people that were the innocent, the people that were the uneducated or unknowledgeable about God could easily be drawn away, especially a younger generation that's supposed to be there next. And so the death penalty was practiced. Yep, I think that covers it. All right, verse 19. That purity even extended to the beast. Uh, when they talked about earlier on the purity with women, it also went to the beast. And there's a reason for that. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when God created all things in the garden and Adam was there, you remember that God brought all the animals before Adam and he named them. And by the way, that wasn't just so they would have names. In fact, it wasn't that at all. It was about God showing Adam that there wasn't any animal that was compatible to be his helpmeet. And so... They were not to practice bestiality, is what he's talking about here, which would be the replacement of the proper place of a wife by an animal. And he says that's not going to be tolerated, which also, by the way, was a practice common among idolatry. So he says that's not going to be practiced among my people. Here we see God emphasizing that not only does man have a responsibility to each other, but man has a responsibility to the creation that God put man over, yeah. so that we're responsible to take care of this 
earth that we were given, and so, therefore animals as well. All right, now let's read verse 20 now. He says, he who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Now that's the context I was talking about with the sorceress and then also bestiality. And that's God getting back to the fact that he is God. He led them out of Egypt. He led them across the sea. He provided them with water. He provided them with food. He's giving them a law and he's going to keep leading them. So they cannot replace him with somebody else. All right, go ahead. No, that's... You got it? Okay, now 21 through 27. I want to read verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, this is going to be more explained as uh, the Old Testament continues on, but I think that the great, uh, at least a good enough explanation is given in this verse. When they were in Egypt, they were not Egyptians. They're called strangers. Now, word we might use is foreigners or immigrants. And so what he's saying here is, now, don't think that these people who are from other nations are beneath you either. And by the way, they did that. You know, when you get to the first century, they thought the Gentiles were dogs. They really thought the Samaritans were low because they weren't of them. And so he says, you don't treat people like that. Those, you, you don't take advantage of those who you think are beneath you because they're not beneath you. They are just as much a part of uh, the creation as God, as you are. And so God blesses them just as he does you. Now, I, I'm going to read verses 22 through 27, but Rich may have something to add first. Even in a culture where God has established that Israel is the chosen nation, that these people he's talking to now will be led directly by Yahweh, the God of all creation. Unlike the other nations that they'll come into contact with, God is still reminding them that nobody is lesser than them, that they are responsible to look out for those who are disenfranchised, those who are um, neglected by society, and those who are strangers to them. Okay, now let's read chapter 22 and verses 22 through 27. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with a sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. It's his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear for I am gracious. Uh, the, the idea here is continuing again with this thought of how you treat each other, especially those who, are, who you could take advantage of. And in this case, I wanted to read that because I think that this answers the problem of what was happening uh, when Jesus is in his earthly, earthly ministry and he enters into the city of Jerusalem and he looks around the temple and you remember the account where he drives the money changers out? In fact, that happens twice. It happens twice. And you wonder why. And the answer is very simply that they forgot this. And so those money changers had found a way to manipulate the worship of God uh, in that there were those who were especially poor or in need who could not bring what would be a proper sacrifice. And so when they would get to the temple, they would have to get something to sacrifice. And these money changers took advantage of the needy and the poor and charged them exorbitant prices to make this happen. And so what they're being told here is, look, you have a responsibility to each other. You have a responsibility to each other. And if you take advantage of each other, especially those who are in a uh, a vulnerable position, the weak, uh, in your mind, then you are responsible and will answer before God, who, by the way, compared to God, we are all in that position, aren't we? 
Okay. Yep. I think this is an example here of God always choosing to look out for those who are poor, those who are lesser than, those who in society are viewed as less than equal. And here God is explaining to the Israeli people that one, they're not, but if you treat them as such, God will then in turn treat you as such. Okay, verse 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. I love that that's connected together. Don't revile God, don't revile a leader of your people. And that's important because, uh, well, in Romans, uh, Paul talks about governments and talks about God's authority behind those governments. I find it significant that there is no place in any of the writings of the New Testament where any of the apostles or other inspired writers went to task against the Roman emperor. Not once. Not once did they, did they challenge the Christians of the first century to rebel against Roman authority. What they said was, do what the government said as long as it doesn't prevent you from doing what God said. And so Israel is being established here, and they're going to fail in this too. They're going to fail in a lot of these, just like we do. But, you know, anybody who's a leader is going to be criticized. And so whoever is your leader, they have their authority from God. It doesn't matter if they're wicked. It doesn't matter if you agree with them doesn't matter today if you're a part of their political party. You need to be responsible for recognizing that God gave authority to governments. And so if you're in that government, receiving the benefits of that government, you respect the authority of that government. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear here that we're to obey the government as, to the best of our ability, to the best that our morals allow us to, because you look at the first century church and you don't see the apostles you mentioned um, saying anything against the government, even though that government just crucified the Christ. Very wicked government. Like, very bad. Like, we're not nearly that bad. Yeah. So if they didn't have a leg to stand on, I don't think we do either. Okay, verses 29 and 30. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. So it would be really easy because they had been so poor and neglected as servants in Egypt to now get a little bit of wealth and say, you know, I'm going to hang on to this. This is mine. When I get enough, I'll give something to God. And God says, you don't do that. You don't do that. God has to be first. And if he's first, you'll see. He'll take care of you after that. Yeah, I give your first to God. Okay, chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. Let's read verses 1 through 3. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. So both extremes are given here. Don't let anybody buy you out. And don't feel sorry for somebody so that you change justice just because you feel sorry for them. Justice needs to be justice. Yeah. We're in a society today where with the division that's occurring in the United States, we have people that are taking positions simply because other people around them tell them they should take that position. We have kids, and this has probably always been the case. It was even when I was a kid, that they went along with the crowd just because they didn't want to stand out and, and you know be the odd one. What he's saying here is, be the odd one, even if it, if it makes you odd, because you need to always do the right thing. Do the right thing regardless of what the crowd does. Do the right thing regardless of who's pushing you to do the wrong thing. Just do the right thing. Yeah, I think um, God here is emphasizing the idea that what is right will always be right, no matter how bad it makes you feel. Whether it makes you feel bad because you're not going to gain from it, or if it makes you feel bad because you know somebody's going to suffer from it, either way, what is right is still right. 
Okay, verses 4 and 5. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. I love that one because I think our, our instinct when something goes, when somebody is, as he, as he defines it here, your enemy or somebody who has a problem with you, when something goes bad for them, it's really easy for us to think or say or act in such a way that we, uh, that we think, well, they're just getting what they deserve. I watch it. My, my granddaughters, boy, they can argue with each other. They're only two and four years old, but they can argue, and I watch them, and one of them will do something to aggravate the other one, and you know what? The other one will get even. They'll get even, and, and they deserve it. Why'd you do that? Well, they did that to me. What the principle that God says here is it doesn't matter what the other person is. God didn't tell you to make sure the other person does the right thing. God told you to make sure you do the right thing. And even if your enemy is struggling, don't rejoice over that. Help them out. In fact, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be instinctual for many people if they walked up and they saw somebody that was their enemy and the donkey had fallen on them to say, oh boy, I'd like to see you get out of that one. You sure deserve it. If anybody deserves it, it's you. You know what he said, dude? Go help them. You know why? Because it's the right thing to do. Oh, and by the way, it might make that guy not be your enemy anymore. Yeah, and this one is hard because in the culture that we live in, we are fed to take delight in the failings of people we dislike, especially right now, not to get political, but we are coming into an election, and depending on what news channel you watch, you will get excited when something bad happens to another person. Yeah, or, or party. Or party. And here, reading these verses, we're told that that is morally wrong, and that's something that's hard based on the culture that we live in. Yeah, we need to make a difference in that culture. All right, verses 6 through 9, we won't read, but basically what he says here is, you also have a responsibility for the land. And again, Rich brought this up a while ago. When God gives us a land, we have a responsibility to be stewards. He was giving them a land, and he said, you need to be stewards of it. You need to take care of the possessions, uh, the blessings that God gives you. Yeah. Okay, 14 through 19 is a precursor of what's coming. Uh, again, we won't read it, but when they get into the land and God gives them the, their possession, their inheritance, it's going to become very easy to forget him. It's going to become very easy to forget about all the blessings that God has given and about their past. So he said, what I'm going to do is at, at some point I'm going to put my name in a city, and we know that city will ultimately be Jerusalem. And that's going to be where the temple is, and that's where the altar is, and that's the center of their worship and their nation. And so God says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to travel there, all males. You're going to have to travel there for three feasts. And those three feasts are mentioned here. The first one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We call it Passover. And so their responsibility was, remember, you're going to do this throughout the remainder of this law Every year at the same time, you're going to celebrate this feast because you never forget what God did to bring you out of that captivity. The second feast he mentions there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I mean, rather, the Feast of Harvest. And that was to happen at the beginning of their harvest because what it was is the time that they were supposed to bring their first fruits. Bring the first of the harvest and give it to God. That was supposed to remind them that it was God who was going to take care of them and they were going to trust him. And then the third feast was the Feast of Ingathering. And that would happen at the end of harvest. And what it would be is a reminder in the feast. And again, all males were supposed to go there for these three feasts. That was supposed to be a reminder that God did fulfill his promise. 
that he did take care of them through the harvest and give them what he had promised that he would. So all of them were to remind them of God, his blessings, his provisions, and his power. In the same way that we partake of communion on Sunday, God was telling them to partake of these feasts and festivals to remind them of both a physical account that happened and a spiritual concept that they needed to learn. Okay, verses 20 through 26 deal with uh, their responsibility. God's going to take care of them, send his angel before them. It's the angel of the Lord. It's the pre-incarnate Christ, the word. God's going to lead them by that, uh, that the angel of the Lord, but they had a responsibility to follow him as a nation. He's not saying you won't ever fail, not saying you won't ever struggle, not saying people won't turn away, but the nation has to have a direction, and that direction has to be toward God. As long as they do that, God will protect them. But there's a very interesting statement found in verses 25 and 26 of Exodus 23 that I want to read. Listen to this. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you, no one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So start with the end of it. He says, I'm going to make sure you stay in the land as long as you follow me. And then he says some things won't happen as long as you follow me. You won't be struggling with sickness. You won't have a loss of a pregnancy. And you won't have women who can't be pregnant. Now, I thought about that. And maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm, I have forgotten something. Uh, but to the best of my knowledge, I, the first account that I can find in the scripture of a woman who became barren after this law was given. Now we know about Abraham and Sarah and you know the things that, the, the subsequent barrenness that happened. But after this law was given, if I can remember correctly, the first person to struggle with this was a woman by the name of Hannah. Hannah shows up in the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And the interesting thing there is what's happening in the time of Israel is they have taken the land, they have divided it up, and they have had a period of faithfulness to God as a nation. They failed, again, time and time again, they failed, but the nation has a direction. But when you reach 1 Samuel chapter 1, all of a sudden what's happened is you're in a place where the nation is going to show up before Samuel and say, we don't want to follow God anymore. We want a king. We want a king so that we can be like all the other nations around us. We don't want God to be our king. So the nation turns. They turn away from God and say they don't want. And Hannah's the one. Hannah's the one that's barren because of what's happening in the nation when they get to this place. So this promise that God made endures until they, until they walk away from him. And I think the example of Hannah exemplifies one of the main points here is that this promise is conditional. It is based on Israel's ability to obey God and the commandments he sets before us. And I think that's evident in the way that our, our promises with God are also conditional based on our response to him. Yeah. Okay, the last section in chapter 23 is verses 27 through 33, and I want to read verses 27 through 30. Uh, let's see, 27 through 30. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Now two things I want to highlight there. One of them is, you remember, if you remember the battle of Jericho, before that battle occurred there were spies sent into Jericho and they went to the home of Rahab and Rahab told them specifically, hey everybody in this city is afraid. 
They're afraid of what, because of what they have heard God has done for you back on the other side of the river. They haven't even been here yet, and they're afraid. So just like God promised, if they do what he asked them to do, he would make the people before they get in the land afraid of them. And it happened. But the second thing is, God tells them specifically, I could drive all these people out, but I'm not going to just snap my fingers and do it. You're going to take the land, and part of that's going to be because they need those battles. But the second thing is, the land needs it. The land needs it. If God just drove everything out and it all became wild land, that would be difficult for Israel to deal with. But they will drive out the inhabitants little by little, as long as they're following God. And as a consequence of that, the land would be inhabitable, and it would be, it would be provided by God, but in such a way that was good for the land and good for Israel. Yes, they'll gain more and more portions of the promised land as they continue to grow as a nation, both in numbers and in ability. I also find it interesting in the last three verses of this chapter, God warns them about these enemy nations that are bordering them. And he tells them, if you let them live among you, you're going to fall into sin and you're going to start worshiping their God. So he's warning them not to let them inhabit the nation among them. And yet we know if we've read ahead a little bit, they do fail at this and that's exactly what does happen. Okay, we thank you for joining us. Uh, we uh, we net, we'll continue on from there up to about verse or chapter twenty-seven of Exodus. Hopefully, next week we'll start sending out some uh, reminders through our Facebook page of what we will be studying that week, so you can maybe prepare ahead of time since we're covering them in sections now instead of each chapter at a time. So, uh, but we'll start there and continue on through chapter twenty-seven next week. But we'll close at this time with a prayer. Dear Lord, our Father, we're so thankful for your presence in our lives. We're so thankful that you have given us this gift, your word, that we can read the accounts, the history of things that has happened to your people, your interactions with your chosen nation, Lord, that we can look into it and see characters of you, characters of your love, your unchanging nature, and the examples of people who have loved and worshipped you in accordance to your will, Lord. We ask that as we read this, we see ourselves both in the good and the bad, in the good so that we can mimic and in the bad that we can recognize what we need to change in our own lives. God, we ask that you be with us always, that you continue to bless us with your word. It's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.